The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Hello and welcome to the quarterly update podcast for the Loomis Sales Strategic Alpha Fund, where portfolio managers share their thoughts on the markets and their strategies. My name is Erica Casal from the Texas Investment Managers, and today Matt Egan, the portfolio manager on the Strategic Alpha Fund, is joining. Uh, thanks for joining today, Matt. Thanks for having me again. Um, and so if we dive right in, um, it did seem like we had a pretty eventful third quarter. Um, we saw pretty sustained volatility across fixed income markets. One of the biggest shifts I think that we saw as we got through September was some of that severe volatility we saw in treasury markets. Um, from your team's perspective, you know, what, what do we think is driving that? Do you think that'll continue? Well, yes and no. So um, I think one of the things I'm advising people when they're approaching these kinds of markets is to think about some of the structural drivers that are underneath them all. It, it, it makes them, it sort of allows you to, to get a flavor or understand uh, the, you know, the quarterly type of moves that we're having. And, and you, you remember, I, I, I talk a lot about what we call our four D's and that's demographics, de- decouplization, um, decarbonization and deficits. And a lot of the volatility in recent years, um, you can really point to one or more of these structural themes that we think are, are underlying all of this. Now, there are three major consequences to these structural themes. And one of them is that uh, I think inflation has become unstable. So there's a lot of argument whether you know, there's disinflation and that you know, it's gonna stay in a disinflationary environment ultimately, or a lot of people say we're in a sticky inflation environment. And I think the way I would characterize it is that, you know, we're, we're going to have unstable inflation relative to um, what we've experienced in the uh, you know, post-GFC years and really for a long period of time, even before then. Um, and for this recent, uh, as you say, volatility in, in the Treasury market, uh, I would point to the deficit as being the key driver there. And it was it came uh, that one of the things is that the front end of the curve really was not the source of a lot of the volatility. So I'm talking like the two two year part of the of the, uh, uh, the curve around that point. And um, this is in line with our view that we think the Fed is mostly done with this cycle. You know, there could be another quarter point uh, move in the Fed funds policy rate, but we think the cycle is nearing over or over for the Federal Reserve cycle uh, with the, you know, with Fed funds rate up around five and a half percent. So we think they're going to pause and and remain paused until sometime later in 2024. Um, And so what that means is that the volatility there is stopped and it'll it'll be more stable at that point of the curve. What what happened in in the last quarter from in in a little bit after the uh, end of the quarter was that longer dated treasury started to rise and rise pretty significantly. We, you know, in, in the, I think from uh, August to sometime in the end of September, the, the back end of the curve went up about 80 basis points, which is a big move, and the curve steepened out. And it came um, just after the announcement of the, uh, the treasury about its refunding schedule. So it's auction schedules that were coming out. And as we know, every month the, uh, the treasury auctions, a lot of paper 
a lot of treasury notes to fund the government. And um, the, 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 um, those auctions actually for a while post pandemic had been falling in the size of those, um, those uh, monthly auctions. And um, what came out was that the, um, the treasury was going to be increasing its auction sizes and relatively significantly out the curve. So not just in the T-bill space, but all the way out to the 30 year. So there was an incremental increase. And what that got people to focus on was the structural deficit that's out there. Um, and so we've talked a lot about this, you know, the, the low end of the deficit forecast out in the street is something like 5% high fives over the next three years. Some would put it out at six and moving higher. A lot of people started recognizing that, you know, things like interest expense and the cost of that financing is taking a chunk out of the deficit uh, or adding to the deficit here. So um, this is coming at a time when it, it's not counter cyclical. In other words, it's a structural there. If anything, we've had full employment and the government shouldn't really be running a deficit at that, you know, according to economic textbooks. But of course, entitlements, defense spending, things like that are very difficult, if not impossible to cut. In fact, they're growing and it leaves politicians with a lot less room to really create a, a, an electable platform to, to really address the deficit, especially when you think about the backdrop in Washington these days. So that's, I think, spooked the market and caused a reset in the long end. And, and really what that is, is uh, what we call a lot of people in the bond market, they call the term structure premium in the marketplace. Uh, and what that is, is compensating investors for un uncertainty about the future. And that uncertainty can be just the amount of supply that has to clear the private markets through these auction schedules. And it comes at a time when foreigners have stepped back. Um, obviously, central banks have pulled back and if anything are doing QT like the United States. So net net of it is there's this recognition that we've been talking about a while a lot more treasury supply that has to clear the market the treasury clears the market it, if any bond is going to clear the market it's going to be the treasury market treasury gets its its money and the question is at what level and so we saw repricing out the curve and and that's essentially um what has happened um, when we look at uh, the third quarter and I think most of that is, um, you know, I think if anything, when I think about the scenarios that we laid out, say, you know, even a year ago, my team lays out a number of scenarios where we think about upside and downside for the treasury market. This was our bear case. In other words, the yields, these, these were the peak kind of yields that we could see in our worst case scenario. That doesn't mean they can't run up a bit more, but um, we thought it was at a level where the compensation for going out the curve is much more attractive than it has been in a long, long, long time. I know you mentioned you have scenarios you look at for treasuries, but I know obviously you guys are, are thinking about scenarios for, for more of that uh, or more than that one major indicator being, um, you know, you, what, the scenarios that your team uses to position the portfolio uh, dependent on where the economy is in the credit cycle. And I think the last time we were together, you maintained that the U.S. does remain in this this late expansion phase of the credit cycle. Has that changed at all for you? Uh, it has not. We still think we're late cycle. Um, this is a case I've been calling the, the, the dog that hasn't bitten. 
it. Um, and what I mean by that is um, for a long time now, going back really after the Ukraine war and also the realization right around that time that inflation was going to be sticky for a while longer than people thought and that the Fed was going to go on this offensive to kind of raise rates and get um, inflation down. Uh, the mar you know, market participants started to get gloomy about uh, the, a, a, an impending downturn. So that was, you know, early in 20, relatively early in 2022. And um, so what, in effect, what the market was, and when you look at risk assets and spreads in particular, like what you're saying is sort of the, the spreads, when we look at the valuations that are in the market, the, the market was kind of front running what the um, actual economic outlook is in, 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 what the, in other words, how it turned out, right? In other words, the dog did not bite. There was no recession there yet. There has not been a downturn yet. And uh, we've been pushing back on the view that spreads have been too narrow in, in given the, uh, the economic hand-wringing out there and the hand-wringing about the geopolitics. I, I can talk a little bit more that, about that in a minute, but, um, you know, there is, the, suffice to say that we think that risk, credit risk premiums have actually been relatively attractive. They've been above average uh, for the past 12 months or so. And we've leaned into that um, to pick up the extra sp spread available in some of the, you know, not, you know, not going way down the credit spectrum, uh, most part just sticking in the securitized space in, in the uh, double B, triple B kind of, uh, credit quality side and we've been able to you know pick up some of that carry which explains you know pretty good numbers over uh you know over a, a one-year uh trailing uh, basis through the end of september um so that that's been healthy now i do think uh what's important to say is that while the overall economy you wouldn't label has it going through a downturn uh, if you look underneath the surface there's been a lot of volatility amongst the various sectors out there and in fact some parts of the broad parts of the, the sectors of the economy have actually been, you know, you could call it a recession, for example, like manufacturing for um, big part of 2022 and early in 2023, where it's going through a destocking cycle. And you can see it in the uh, manufacturing PMI was below 50, which indicated contraction. And there were job losses in that area. And uh, there was, you know, there were periods where it was negatively contributing to GDP. Uh, that I actually think is behind us. The uh, the destocking that was pretty severe um, when you know the the economy shifted from consumption and durable goods during the pandemic shifted away from durable goods. A lot of uh, manufacturing, a lot of stores, et cetera, got caught with a lot of durable goods, et cetera, and you know that led to some inventory washouts that led to less production and so forth. That I think is actually at the end. And if anything, it's you know picking up over the last couple of months, there's been job hiring in the manufacturing space. PMIs are ticking up above 50. We just got a PMI, S&P &P PMI today above 50. So that looks like it's healing. I don't think it's gonna be doing uh, gangbusters, but it's definitely healing. Um, Consumption, though, has remained pretty good at the consumer level. It just shifted from durable goods to services and, and non-durable goods. And, um, you know, I think what anecdotally we're starting to see is some softening in consumption. I think invest, uh, consumers 
are getting a bit tapped out by uh, the, all of the inflation that has been in the pipeline and it's hitting home. Their savings is, are depleted after having built that up during the pandemic. Um, and so they're getting tapped out a little bit. And I think, you know, the rates also with mortgages being very high, you know, it's very difficult to buy a car, buy a home, et cetera, et cetera. So I think on the margin, we're going to see softening there. And that could lead to some unemployment tick up. So I would not be surprised to see a downturn, let's say, let's call it a downturn um, in 2024. I think it will take the form of a very mild recession because, again, as I mentioned, some areas have already been in recessionary conditions. So it's not like they have a big way to fall if it were to happen. And a lot of companies and businesses have sort of right sized themselves for that type of environment. But, you know, unemployment could rise moderately. It could be sort of a growth recession whereby, you know, GDP doesn't fall to a point that the NEBR would call it a recession, but you're not generating enough economic growth to absorb the growth in the labor supply and thus unemployment rises moderately. I think all of that would be welcomed by the Fed, and I think that's what, what we have in store. Now, getting back to spreads, why we're not worried about that is because the market has already built that in to credit spreads. We, as we've said before, uh, the way we look at the value in spreads is not the absolute value. You know, so people look at the high yield spread; it's running around 450, 500. And they say that's not where it should be during downturn. It should be at 800 or whatever. And we think that's the wrong way to look at it. We look at losses. That's what defines or drives returns in the investment grade, high yield, whatever credit spread environment you're looking at. And what we see are, even in the case of that kind of downturn, are relatively low losses, okay? And that's the important thing. So even though that spread seems kind of snug, the losses are also gonna be very low. And, and so you're actually getting higher than normal, a higher than median spread in the credit spaces like investment grade credit, high yield credit, and so on. So that's why we think it still pays to lean in. We're not, uh, you don't need to be a hero <laughs> because you're gonna get um, very good carry in that intermediate kind of quality, triple B, double, double B area. Uh, and, and I think you can build you know, terrific excess carry, um, which serves as a nice buffer to you know, any bit of volatility we get in the next um, year or so. And we have reserves to buy if it, you know, if there are a few bumps as we go into the new year. And not to interrupt, you're you're definitely on a roll here. But I feel like when we talk about this product, you know, as we remind people, this is a little bit different than some of the other funds that that Matt and the full discretion team run. This one falls in the non-traditional bond Morningstar category. So I just like to stop, maybe take a step back, you know, for a refresher for our, some of our newer listeners. Um, could you just remind us what the strategic alphas? fund's main goals are? Yeah, sure. You know, it's always, uh, there's a lot of players in this market and there's a lot of different kind of strategies. Our strategy is to provide investors with a risk reward that is in line with what they would expect with their traditional fixed income, you know, uh, allocation, that being like a core, core plus type of, uh, you know, uh, you know, a mindset. And it starts with, uh, Create, you know, it starts with thinking about what is the right risk profile for that. We think that's in the four to six percent range, which is where those things live. 
Um, so over the cycle will be a standard deviation. Um, we're taking a volatility risk around four to six percent. We don't want to run higher than that uh, for any meaningful period of time, and uh, we can certainly run lower. Uh, and we will shift to principal preservation where we don't think we're getting paid uh, to take risk. There's been times where we've run significantly below four. Uh, but like I said, you know, we don't want to be slavish about it, but we don't want to run above six. Incidentally, we're running like an ex-ante tracking uh, today of around four, uh, four and a quarter, which is on the lower end of the range. Uh, but we're on a lower, you know, we're in an intermediate kind of uh, vol environment today. And we want to leave some cushions so that we don't, you know, vol spikes, that we don't uh, go off sides uh, on the upside. For the return aspect of it, our, our uh, benchmark is T-bills, and obviously we want to provide good excess return versus T-bills. Over the long run, we think that's going to be 2 to 4%, which is um, you know, a very form formidable target, and we've uh, done that in the past. Uh, but we also want to add value to the ag, because after all, we're offering you know, a product that should be thought of lining up with the ag or ag-like products either side by side or, you know, in, in replacement of. And so we want to beat the ag over any reasonable period of time. Um, and so it's sort of a dual mandate. You know, we think about both where, you know, at any given point in time, we might be trailing one or the other, but over the full cycle, we want to be beating both of those, um, those, those bars. Um, and, the track record for this is that it is an excellent diversifier to your traditional uh, fixed income. And so we always recommend it being thought of that way as you can add it to your fixed income allocation and it adds to the to the value of your overall portfolio by lowering uh, your standard deviation, raising your sharp, uh, sharp ratio, et cetera. And if you look at over the past five years for this thing, it's really lift it, it's really carried its weights um, by preserving principle in this rising rate environment. It's just crushed the ag. Uh, the ag has been down something like five and a half percent annualized for a number of years. And this this uh, strategy has held the line. And what I, from a principle perspective, and what's really important is we went from a very low environment, uh, yielding environment, while preserving that principle, I mean like a two or three percent yield to now a seven, seven and a half percent yield to the portfolio. That's the yield that I look at when I'm managing the portfolio. Um, and that is exactly what we set out to do, you know, when rates were super low, way, uh, you know, just a few years ago is to get to that higher level of yield. So managing through that environment, I think this this uh, this strategy has added a lot to fixed income lineups. But I would just I would add a lot of people think it's well, it's a rising rate environment uh, investment. It is absolutely not because it does well through both rising and declining rate environments because of the style and the things that it buys while acting uh, as a good diversifier. Sure. No, you're 100% right. And to your point, the product did add a lot to portfolios, especially in the third quarter. The fund actually was positive. Uh, it was up, roughly up about 1.3%. So it really did blow away performance as far as comparatively to the broader fixed income markets. Um, and speaking in, in the broad buckets as far as you know what drives 
fixed income attribution of credit curve and currency. Can you just speak about what the major drivers and detractors of return were for the quarter? Well, one thing I would uh, point out is with the kind of yield that we're talking about, the yield alone ends up, you know, like if the portfolio does nothing from a price perspective, it's going to generate a nice quarterly return just from that carry that it's generating now. So it's very formidable from that perspective. But um, some of the ads that we had is, uh, you know, are, are sort of decisions that we've made that have contributed. One is um, we've been sneaking out the yield curve all this year as the Fed's gotten closer and closer to the uh, the peak Fed funds rate, and we've gotten more comfortable with that call. Um, right now, we're running with a three and a half year duration. We've increased that recently. But for most of the third quarter, we still had a two handle on our duration. Most of our duration is coming from the two to five year part of the curve, which is much less sensitive to interest rate movements um, than obviously the long end because of the lower duration. Um, and like I said, we've been comfortable there because the Fed controls the short end of the curve. And with rates up, you know, towards their what we think is the peak uh, terminal value for this cycle, we think that anchored in the short end and made it um, palatable to move out the curve. Even though you're moving out a, um, a downward sloping curve, we think that makes a lot of sense because we think that two, five, and even now the seven year part of the curve has a good risk reward for it. For, and what I mean by that, you know, you can sit in cash and earn, you know, look, the one year T bill earns 5.4% last time I, I looked at it. You will definitely get that yield over one year, right? But you will not get any more than that. So the trick always with a uh, inverted curve is to not overstay your welcome in the short end. You need to move out the curve because one day the Fed is going to pivot and, and start talking down rates and actually cutting rates, which we think could be sometime next year. And then as soon as that happens, you're going to take that five-year and roll it into a four uh, handle coupon and then maybe even to a three handle coupon. So your forward looking return, you're going to have what's known as reinvestment rate risk. You're going to be reinvesting that five handle uh, into a four and maybe even a three. And so your forward looking return starts to go down. And the trick is to get into the longer data, even though you're giving up short term carry. And by the way, it's not a lot right now. Um, you're going to get the potential for uh, capturing a declining rate environment. And in that case, you know, the middle part of the curve, that five year can be up, you know, a solid high single digit, um, you know, in, in the kind of the scope that we're thinking about. And then all of a sudden you're really outperforming cash. That's where we want to be ready to to get that. And we don't mind, um, you know, losing a little bit of the curve uh, to carry to the curve because we're picking up much more carry in other spots so that we have a, a bigger yield advantage to cash anyways. Uh, so that was, I think, it was a good decision. One of the things that we did there too, because um, you know, because of our our structural view on the deficits and so on, and so on, we've been very cautious in the long end of the curve because we didn't think the term structure, uh, we didn't think enough was priced into the term structure to reflect the instability of inflation and the um, the fact that deficits were going to be structurally very high, and that would lead to a lot more supply coming to market. And one of the ways we um, expressed that was a steepener in the curve. And this added a lot of basis points, uh, I think as much as 40 basis points to our performance in the third quarter, which was actually outright shorting the long end. So we were outright short the 30-year, 
and long the two and five year part of the curve. So we were basically looking at that five year 30 and five, the difference between the five and the 30 year part of the curve, which was about uh, flat when we put on the trade and then uh, steepened out uh, something like 20 basis points. So the sensitivity of that trade that we put on um, actually made money. So that was sort of um, a uh, more than just a, you know, a duration trade it was actually a shape of the curve. Uh, it was a bet on the shape of the curve, which played off uh, very well. Um, and then lastly, I think item selection, I talked a lot of, we talked a lot about spread dynamics and the downturn that really started in the spread sector in 2022. Well, along with that came a lot of dispersion. And we've seen a lot of great companies um, that have been, or assets, asset rich companies that trade at very significant discounts that my team is looking at and saying, this makes a lot of sense from a risk reward perspective, very good margin of safety. And we built up positions in a few of these, uh, more than a few of these names. Um, you know, from cruise lines during the pandemic, we've been building that up to uh, names like Dish Communications, Altice USA uh, bonds. Those really started to kind of go into the win column in the in the third quarter. And we hope, you know, we'll continue to get some traction on those names as investors start, you know, looking at these more closely and realizing that they've been sold off too much, far too below the intrinsic value of those assets. Kind of as we get closer to the end of the year, I think number one question on everyone's minds is is really what to expect for the last quarter. What do you think your team is is thinking about most or or watching most as far as the biggest risks and opportunities through the end of the year? Yeah, well, you know, obviously we've got the geopolitics we've got to keep an eye on. I think the you know the outbreak of war um, in uh, you know uh, the Gaza area, you know, off, off of Israel is something to be very nervous about in terms of the possibility of that expansion. You know, hopefully uh, that will not expand. I think that could be a source of um, of flight to, to quality. If it, if it were to happen, we're keeping a close eye on that. Um, but, you know, that goes back to the decouplings. Um, you know, I think everybody should be, you know, eyes wide open about this is a multipolar world. And, um, those geopolitical risk flat are going to, those factors are going to flare up from time to time. And uh, we just got to be mindful of it. Of course, the main event is between China and the US and the rivalry there. But we're seeing proxy wars break out in Ukraine and now in, um, in, in Israel. And uh, we just got to be mindful of that. And I, th the theme there is it's going to lead to security and, um, you know, whether it's companies, um, whether it's uh, nations or even individuals, thinking less about um, free markets and you know uh, globalization, there's going to be sort of more concentration on nearshoring, et cetera, et cetera. So we're you you look at our exposures; they're mainly in North America right now for part of partly for that reason. We're trying to take advantage of nearshoring opportunities where we can, like in um, if anywhere outside the United States, we've got a a great buy in Semex, for example, is the Mexican cement company that's I think is well positioned to make money from nearshoring there. So we're trying to do things like that. Um, but you know, uh, I, I think uh, also I talked a little bit about the turning of the cycle in the U.S. And again, this is anecdotal and even things that I'm just seeing around where I live. But um, 
in just reading in the paper, but I just see some things that I've seen in the past that start to see cracks forming in consumption and uh, reminds me it, it's not going to be sort of the oh my gosh moments like we got during the GFC meltdown or even the obviously the pandemic meltdown. They're the kind of things you see during a run-of-the-mill recession. And I, you know, I've seen these cycles pre-08, and I think we're we're potentially going to see that unfolding. So we're just, I would watch the consumer very closely. I, I still expect inflation to continue to bottom out here. And so we're watching those numbers carefully. Um, I think the key metric to watch there is shelter costs, which, you know, typically lag the broader, you know, uh, pricing indices. And I expect, you know, that should um, lag to such that we, you know, we bottom out somewhere the two handle, mid twos, maybe high twos. Um, and then the cycle begins on the other side of that. So those are all the things that I'm looking to confirm our views about a potential slowdown next year, the scope of that slowdown. The, and I think from there, the Fed's response, because once you start seeing something like that happen, the next question is, when is the Fed going to cut? Right now, the market's pricing in sometime around May. Um, and I'm not going to quibble too much with that. Um, you know, maybe there's a couple of rate cuts next year that are backloaded, you know, somewhere time May, uh, May or later. Um, and, you know, there's a chance that if things are, are weaker than we're expecting, there could be a bit more front loaded into the market meaning late 2024 instead of a couple two or three there'll be you know maybe more than that so too soon to say for now uh that the headline data is not indicating that so i think you have to kind of go through the tea leaves and see and maybe squint at the data a little bit um but i do sense you know from my experience with these things that there's definitely some slowing in the consumption area and i know you've already talked a little bit about how you're broadly positioning the portfolio but I know, um, you know, are, are there any other major positioning themes? I know you mentioned duration and, and building liquidity into the portfolio, but anything else as we as we head into this last quarter? Well, we've taken the curve trade off. Um, we captured that. We're, if anything, we've creeped out the duration more um, to about three and a half, still sticking this uh, two to five year, just sort of increasing that exposure. You know, the next steps I'm looking for is to when do we move out even further? I would still, you know, I doubt for this product that we'll move out to the 30 year. I'm just like the 30 year trades in its own orbit. It's a very strange, uh, you know, animal and subject to uh, technical factors um, and in the budget, you know, could could uh, wreak havoc with that type of, um, you know, uh, maturity. But, um, you know, I, I think. There could be a time at some point where we start to move out closer to a five-year durational overall, and in which case we'll have to move out maybe to the 10-year part, but we're, that's too soon to say we'll get there yet. We're happy to lean into credit spreads in a moderate fashion. Um, I would say we're about 50% of the risk that we can take in this book, you know, so we can take a lot more risk, but, um, you know, I'm comfortable kind of hanging out in the triple B, double B area and taking advantage of a lot of the dispersion that we've seen here. You know, so when I look forward, um, you know, I was just looking at this for we do all sorts of risk exercises, particularly downside uh, risk. Right. We, you know, looking forward and saying what's going to happen, what will drive an actual loss in this portfolio. And 
one thing that I think is always, um, you have to kind of go through the bond math and think about it. But now when I look at the portfolio and the portfolio yield is high sevens, okay, just when I look at it on my data points here, you know, when you think of that running at a three and a half year duration um, for every 100 basis points, and this is just generic, like rule of thumb, not 100 basis points in the market, but to this portfolio, whatever happens, 100 basis points because of spreads, because of yields or the combination of those two things, that's a three and a half percent up or down, you know, price action. So even if you get that and then you get your coupon, uh, you're actually going to have uh, a positive total return. If um, you know, so in other words, the the we I feel comfortable taking more risk in the portfolio or the level risk we're taking in the portfolio today, simply because we're earning more carry, and that should make sense to people because you have that buffer. Um, and on the upside, now we're talking about possible double-digit returns for this strategy, and that can come uh, through you know good security selection. Um, it'd be nice to get a little bit of a reprieve in the rate uh, hike and actually get some you know rate deceleration which could happen on the back of a downturn uh, so you know this this portfolio for looking um, is is a dream to me relative to where it was say in the year 2020 uh, before going to the pan uh, pandemic and we were looking at you know uh, ultra low yields. Uh, th those were areas where it was more consternation for me than today. I feel like today we're, we can generate a very attractive return. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate your time today. Um, for our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the Strategic Alpha Fund and about how Matt and his team run the strategy, please reach out to your Texas wholesaler. Or you could get some more information if you visit our website at im.nitixis.com. Thank you. Important information. Standard performance as a percentage for Luma Sales Strategic Alpha Fund as of September 30th, 2023. Class A at NAV. Three months. 1.23. Year to date. 2.77. One year. 4.96. Three years. Negative 0.09. Five years. 1.39. Ten years. 2.06. Class A with 4.25% maximum sales charge. Three months. Negative 3.04. Year to date. Negative 1.64. One year. 0.54. Three years. Negative 1.51. Five years. 0.51. Ten years. 1.62. Class Y, three months, 1.3, year to date, 2.87, one year, 5.15, three years, 0.17, five years, 1.63, 10 years, 2.32, ICEB of a three month treasury bill index, three months, 1.31, year to date, 3.60, one year, 4.47, three years, 1.70, five years, 1.72, 10 years, 1.11, ICEB of a three month treasury bill index plus 300 basis points, three months, 2.02, year to date, 5.83, one year, 7.48, Three years, 4.69, five years, 4.70, 10 years, 4.10, 30-day SEC yield, Y, subsidized equals 5.91%, 30-day SEC yield, Y, unsubsidized, equals 5.88%, performance data listed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results, total return and value will vary, and you may have a gain or loss when shares are sold, current performance may be lower or higher than quoted, for most recent month-end performance, visit im.natixis.com, performance for other share classes will be greater or less based on differences in fees and sales charges, performance for periods less than one year is cumulative, not annualized, returns reflect changes in share price and reinvestment of dividends and capital gains, if any, top 10 holdings for the Loomis Sales Strategic Alpha Fund as of September 30th, 2023, U.S. Treasury notes, 4.500%, November 30th, 2024, 3.30% of portfolio, Republic of South Africa government bonds, series 2037, 
2.500%, January 31, 2037, 2.00% of portfolio, Glencore Funding LLC, 6.500%, October 6, 2033, 1.30% of portfolio, CCO Holdings LLC CCO Holdings Capital Court, 5.125%, May 1, 2027, 1.20% of portfolio, Uber Technologies, Inc., 4.500%, August 15, 2029, 1.10% of portfolio, Morgan Stanley, MTN, fixed rate to October 21, 2024, variable rate thereafter, 1.164%, October 21, 2025, 1.10% of portfolio, Continental Resources, Inc., 5.750%, January 15, 2031, 1.00% of portfolio, Morgan Stanley, MTN, fixed rate to February 18, 2025, variable rate thereafter, 2.630%, February 18, 2026, 1.00% of portfolio, Citigroup, Inc., fixed rate to January 25, 2025, variable rate thereafter, 2.014%, January 25, 2026, 0.90% of portfolio, Dish DBS Corp., 5.250%, December 1, 2026, 0.80% of portfolio, the portfolio is actively managed and holdings are subject to change, there is no guarantee the fund continues to invest in the securities referenced, gross expense ratio 1.00%, class A share, 0.75%, class Y share, net expense ratio 1.00%, class A share, 0.75%, class Y share, as of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and or reimburse expenses, with certain exceptions once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded, this arrangement is set to expire on April 30, 2024, when an expense cap has not been exceeded, the gross and net expense ratios may be the same. The 30-day SEC yield is a standardized calculation, calculated by dividing the net investment income per share for the 30-day period by the maximum offering price per share at the end of the period and annualizing the result. Unsubsidized 30-day SEC yield is calculated using the gross expenses of the fund. Gross expenses do not include any fee waivers or reimbursement. A subsidized 30-day SEC yield reflects the effect of fee waivers and expense reimbursements. The SEC yield is not based upon distributions of the fund and actual income distributions may be higher or lower than the 30-day SEC yield amounts. During periods of unusual market conditions, the fund's 30-day SEC yield amounts may be materially higher or lower than its actual income distributions. Diversification does not guarantee a profit or protect against a loss. QE, quantitative easing is a form of monetary policy in which a central bank, like the US, Federal Reserve, purchases securities from the open market to reduce interest rates and increase the money supply. CLO, a collateralized loan obligation is a single security backed by a pool of debt. GFC, global financial crisis. AG, agricultural credit refers to one of several credit vehicles used to finance agricultural transactions such as a loan, note, bill of exchange, or a banker's acceptance. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed are as of October, 2023, and may change based on market and other conditions. Loomis Sales Strategy Alpha Fund Risks Fixed income securities may carry one or more of the following risks. Credit, interest rate. As interest rates rise bond prices usually fall. Inflation and liquidity. Below investment grade fixed income securities may be subject to greater risks, including the risk of default, than other fixed income securities. Currency exchange rates between the US dollar and foreign currencies may cause the value of the fund's investments to decline. Derivatives involve risk of loss and may entail additional risks. Because derivatives depend on the performance of an underlying asset, they can be highly volatile and are subject to market and credit risks. Foreign and emerging market securities may be subject to greater political, economic, environmental, credit, currency and information risks. Foreign securities may be subject to higher volatility than U.S. securities, due to varying degrees of regulation and limited liquidity. These risks are magnified in emerging markets. Mortgage-related and asset-backed securities are subject to the risks of the mortgages and assets underlying the securities. Other related risks include prepayment risk, which is the risk that the securities may be prepaid, potentially resulting in the reinvestment of the prepaid amounts into securities with lower yields. 
investments. Commodity-related investments, including derivatives, may be affected by a number of factors including commodity prices, world events, import controls, and economic conditions and therefore may involve substantial risk of loss. Non-diversified funds invest a greater portion of assets in fewer securities and therefore may be more vulnerable to adverse changes in the market. Short exposures using derivatives may present various risks. If the value of the asset, asset class or index on which the fund holds short investment exposure increases, the fund will incur a loss. The potential risk of loss from a short exposure is theoretically unlimited, and there can be no assurance that securities necessary to cover a short position will be available for purchase. We believe the information, including that obtained from outside sources, to be correct, but we cannot guarantee its accuracy. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit im.natixis.com or call 800-862-4863 for a prospectus or a summary prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Distribution, LLC, Fund Distributor, Member FINRA, SIPC, and Loomis, Sales and Company, LP are affiliated, POD 7, September, 2023, at Trax, 217-2184, 24, 1, expiration date, January 31, 2024.